0: has essential truth to it. The subject. You are the subject of your experience. It has validity as well as some kind of absolute truth. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. We spend a lot of time memorizing people and events and dates in school, even some big ideas, But we rarely learn about what those things actually mean to us. And that context, that perspective, is the only thing that's actually useful. So today is a lesson in the history of philosophy, but it's not a bunch of useless facts to memorize. I'm going to show you how ideas from hundreds of years ago are hurting you right now and what you can do about it. We'll begin with a look at the history of objectivism in Western society and how the ideological monotony seen in many societies ends up creating these illusions of absolute truth, illusions ultimately used to secure power and control people that still permeate through the collective unconscious to this day. Then we'll look at how absolute objectivism was eroded by systems of belief that favored subjectivity and how the conflict between the two presents itself in both modern culture and inside our very heads. I know it sounds brainy, but stay with me. You'll see it's simpler than I made it sound just now. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. If you're enjoying the show and learning from it, I'd love your feedback. If you're listening to the show on an Apple device, all you have to do is open the podcast app, view the full description of this episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. So that was The frame. And then fast forward to, we're going to be talking about the, the West, not the East, because the West is, is sort of what we've inherited mostly, depending on who you are. But most of us, the, the collective unconscious that we draw upon, because we all draw upon it, we're all sort of swimming in a soup of collective unconscious. We don't necessarily realize it. But your individual thoughts, beliefs, takes on reality, patterns of approaching situations is not just your own. It's actually very easy to demonstrate that you have, including myself, very few original ideas, especially about the way to relate to life itself. All of this stuff that we think we like, hey, I think, well, blah, blah, it's really easy to see that some philosopher several hundred or thousand years ago thought of it first, and that's where it actually comes from, right? It came before us, and probably before that, and who knows? So, objectivism. In all its different colors, shapes, and sizes. It doesn't matter what you think is true or what you believe, just you have to get that it was all objective. It was, this is the way it is. And there were, it was not at the time like, there were not people who were like, well, I'm a Christian, but I really like a lot of what Buddhism says. So I meditate in a Buddhist way and then I go to church on Sundays. That didn't exist. Okay. That didn't happen. There was no internet. The books from the East didn't make it to Europe in that way. There wasn't even a printing press until 1500. So it was like you were just in the thing you were born into and that was your life. Okay? And that's hard for us to imagine. It was like you were born into that and everyone around you thought pretty much exactly the way you do. And that's just reality. You didn't have an option. It's really quite amazing to think what what it was like that then because what that creates what that does to someone is it makes them think well everyone around me I mean, can you imagine living in a society like that where there's that level of homogeneity of of philosophy and religion and thought patterns everyone around you everyone you've ever talked to thinks re- objectively about reality the exactly same way What's that going to do to you? Well, that's going to give you a sense of absolute truth. Well, this must be the way it is, the same way everyone you know agrees that water is wet. It would be that obvious, that unquestioned, right? So what happened was that power started to get abused, as it often does. And the, the Dark Ages in the, in the Middle Ages were characterized by the feudal system which had no middle class. It was just an upper class and a lower class because these ideas about God or the divine or whatever in any society, but we'll be talking about the West and Europe, these ideas were used for power. So, you know, when it comes to decide who should be leading a civilization or, you know, who a landowner is, in that objective truth, absolute truth system, and you can see this is going as far back as uh, Egypt in our recorded history. The person who has power is the one who's closest to God, whatever that, however that's defined. And that's how it was. And this is called the divine right of kings later on, right? And it's really quite amusing to think about it, right? You got a group of people and you know, somewhere in history and someone's like, well, I think I should get to make the rules. I think I should just get to decide what's right. And well, people are like, well, why you? And they wouldn't necessarily appeal to logic, because that didn't really exist in any kind of formal format in the Middle Ages. They would appeal to the spirit of the times, right? That their relationship to God. You guys know the Merovingian reference in uh, The Matrix? The Merovingians were a family, and it's just referenced Passingly in the, the second Matrix movie, but the Merovingians were a, a, a ruling family in what's now France in the Middle Ages, and the uh, the their claim to power was that the first guy was descended from a sea god slash sea monster. <laughs> That's like in our recorded history. Like, well, why is you know Jacques blah blah Jacques Merovingian get to be the king? Well, haven't you heard? He's descended from a sea god monster and that's like how it worked and probably they were you know people with some strength had some might makes right kind of thing and that was how it happened right it's really nutty to think about well as time went on you can imagine the lower classes started to think that this wasn't so cool right because most of europe was catholic and so the 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 church was it was very much a theocracy right i mean there's a blend as it went from feudal systems with lords who own land and getting you to work for them for really cheap, into monarchies later on, and uh, sort of the, the last half of the Renaissance. But the the deal was this: you do you serve the lord, uh, the you know lord of the land or whatever. You serve the you know the descendant of the sea god, for example, in France. And because that person has a really close relationship with God, and in some ways kind of are like God, depending on who you ask, and you know it's often blurry, then those good works that you do and that faith you have and all that, that's going to get you into heaven. So you'll be rewarded. I know your life sucks now, but you're going to be rewarded when you die, which is an incredibly clever economic system for the rich, isn't it? Right? I mean, what a racket. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to think like this. I mean, you can imagine if somebody founded a, a city now, and I mean, that's sort of what cults are like, depending on the cult, but that's sometimes what happens, right? If you look at uh, what happened in Oregon with the uh, Bhagwan, for example, it was in some ways what was going on. People were giving, rich people were giving them a ton of money and with the promise of you know, bliss and um, enlightenment and everything, but that was this life stuff, not post-life stuff. So that was how it was. So there were revolutions here and there, you know, where people started to uh, see the unfairness of it, uh, but they never really took hold. And then we'd become more and more and more. So I promise, this is going to end. I don't have much time, but we're going to do it. This is going to end with something that's extremely relevant to you and actually addresses this Facebook text car that I talked about. So hang with me. So this got worse and worse and worse, and so the lower classes saw that the rich were getting richer. And things were getting worse and worse for them. And one of the peak examples of this in, in Western Europe was the creation of indulgences. And indulgences was, was a fancy name for, you know, what do they call it in the mafia when you gotta pay pay the people off the protection money? The the idea was uh, the, the idea was like, well, you don't actually have to do your own spiritual work, lower class. The clergy will sort of do it for you because after all, they've all been chosen by God and are way better people than you. Because they have all this money. I mean that's just obvious and they you know dress fancy and can speak Latin and all that. so they're way better than you. So you don't have to do any spiritual work. you just give us money and we'll absolve you of your sins. And then yeah, we know your life will still suck mostly, but when you die, oh boy, it's gonna be great then. right And people are like, oh okay, I guess that's how it is because these people are like next to God, so I'll give them money. Well this just created more and more class division. And uh, and then something, some really important things happened. And now we're talking about the cause of the Renaissance, which is a really interesting topic, and no objective standards about it. But there are a few different things happened. One, there was the Black Plague in the 1200s and early 1300s, which wiped out a third of the population of Europe, which is a lot of people, right? So that changed the wealth distribution, and it it made the lower class less sucky because it wasn't quite it wasn't lots of people sharing very little so much. And then the invention of the printing press, which we all learned. Does anybody remember when that was for 25 points? See, you, you, we don't remember because it doesn't really matter, right? But you're going to remember it now because it actually will have a meaning for you, hopefully. Gutenberg was, on, uh, was one of the answers on um, Jeopardy last night. Sweet. <laughs> I love serendipity. <laughs> I think it was in the 1400s, but I, I'm not sure.: Yes, late, late 1400s, and by 1510 it was like a regular thing they were replicating them. so late 1400s, the printing press was created. Now this is an enormously significant event because it decentralized the church's power, because it wasn't that everyone had a Bible in their home, right? To get the Word of God, you had to go to church because before the printing press, stuff was hand copied. And it took a really long time. How would you like that to be your job? How was your day? Yeah, I you know, got another 5% of that Bible done. Cool. A couple more months and you'll have one done, right? Talk about suckiness. I mean, even the rich didn't have it so great, uh, but nothing compared to the poor. So, uh, so this, uh, because the frame was like, okay, you poor people, you know nothing about God or the way of life and how you should behave. And we've got this very special book. You haven't even been within 20 feet of it. And you got to come to us so we can interpret it for you. Because, by the way, it's not in a language you can even understand, right? It was in Latin. So the printing press allowed this to be copied and distributed. And at the same time, the Protestant Reformation started to foment. And the the two main, one of the really important premises of the Protestant Reformation. Oh, one of them was that the individual can interpret the scripture and they don't necessarily need the fancy rich clergy people to do it for them, which completely undermines that whole indulgence thing. It, it de- deconstructed the racket. You can have your own relationship with God without a middleman, which, of course, the church was not happy about. I mean, it was destroying one of their primary revenue streams, right? Not and, good. And Gutenberg wasn't beheaded over this. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing because lots of people were excommunicated, you know, Galileo and and uh, you know, but but the invention of the printing press probably didn't occur to anybody right at first of like, oh, this is going to really screw us up. I don't know. I'm sure they tried to repress the printing of Bibles, for example. Right, right. Yeah. But it, they probably, you know, probably didn't occur to people right away uh, what it was going to do. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And you know, how, how are you going to go? sack people's homes and steal their printing presses, you know, I mean, it's kind of a difficult thing to do. But it would be interesting, I would love to watch a movie about, you know, what that might have looked like. So, um, the the Protestant Reformation sharply undermined the centralized power of the church. And the other piece that it, one of, the other one, one of the other of its three main premises that it offered was that good works are no longer a necessary path to absolution. You don't have to serve the lords in order to be saved. In other words, your own religious spiritual practice is between you and you. You don't need uh, the confession. This is why Protestants don't confess, right? And and Catholics do. Um, You don't need confession. You don't need this external authority figure. And again, I'm not saying what's right or wrong here. That's beside the point. But um, just to get that the, the Protestant belief system was far more individualistic than the Catholic one, and that sets something in motion that is continuing to echo forward into today. So the loss of power and money from the church as Protestantism spread, super popular idea, right? Empowered the people, and of course, our own country here in the states was founded on this. The Puritans were Protestant, and they came here, for, you know, to get away from the oppression of the Catholic Church. And this took hundreds of years to unfold. There battles and wars and the, you know, the American Revolution and the French Revolution are two of the biggies that we tend to think of, but there were hundreds of other smaller revolts and revolutions, all against the divine right of kings. It's one way of talking about it. So at the same time, in in, you know, the sort of the peak of the Renaissance in the 1600s, 1700s, you started to see more and more independent thought. Because as, as the church lost power, people could start to explore highly individualistic, challenging to the church ideas without the risk of being killed. And that's where a lot of our current philosophy comes from today. So I'm looking from this piece I wrote yesterday that sums it up really uh, succinctly, I think. So let's start with uh, Thomas Hobbes, who was born in 1588. He defined the social contract as self-interested cooperation, which would later become the foundation of modern capitalism. And he believed that humans were selfish at an essential level, And needed absolute monarchies to control their self-destructive tendencies. Now, this still has quite a strong foot in the, you know, monarchical kind of of realm. But he did identify the, that the existence of self-interest and not many philosophers before that talked about because it was very other oriented, serve the Lord and, you know, Lord of your manner, the king and the king serves God. And that's where you are. And you can never be anywhere else. And then about 50 years later, John Locke was born, and he would later assert that all people were equal and independent. Now, this is something we take for granted now, but nobody taught that until the late 1600s. All people were equal and independent. Of course, not certain colored people who were slaves. Somehow, they they missed the critical thinking of that. All people meant white people for him, probably which is, boggles the mind, but hey, that's another good example of where critical thinking can go out the window, even with very intelligent people like this guy. So all people are equal and independent. And this should sound familiar. Everyone has a natural right to defend their life, health, liberty, or possessions, right? Where did that end up? In our constitution, about 100 years later. The Declaration of Independence. Deck of end, thank you. Yes. So that's exactly where that came from. Uh, the, the Puritans who, who, uh, who left Europe had read that book. And this, of course, uh, John Locke also gave us modern conceptions of identity. What an individual identity is. There's another thing we, we take for granted, the subjectivistic viewpoint. Oh, I never defined subjectivism. Oh, I blanked out. Sorry. <laughs> so well, this is a good place to do it. See, it always works out. So I defined objectivism. Subjectivism is what started to develop here. Subjectivism is that the individual viewpoint has essential truth to it. The, the subject, you are the subject of your experience. It has validity as, as well as some kind of absolute truth, right? So that's what was going on in the Protestant Reformation. People like Martin Luther were like, well, you don't need the clergy to tell you what this scripture means. You can read it and decide for yourself. And, you know, there's a church and we can all talk about it. But the subjective viewpoint, your direct relationship with scripture has validity, which the Catholic Church would never agree to. Right? It's not even a language people can read and they're happy it can stay that way. And I didn't even talk about when the... I think the first uh, Bible was translated into uh, German. That was a big deal. I think that was in the 1500s, shortly after the printing press was invented. So that was a big deal too, putting it in a language people could read, which allows for them to have their subjective experience and interpretation of what was held to be absolute truth. So you're starting to see the interplay of objectivism and subjectivism here. That didn't exist before, and we live in that all the time now. And we think like, well, that must have been like how it was forever. No, not at all. It's incredibly recent, historically speaking. Okay, and then uh, John Locke also was the first person to talk about mental conditioning. Uh, which is critical to assert a subjectivistic view. That is, each of us has our own take on reality because of our individual experiences and and conditioning. Well, you read it this way, this Bible passage, and that makes sense because you've had this kind of life. I read it this way because I've had this kind of life. People didn't think that way before then, right? Which is something we just think all the time, right? Right. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.